overheads, no overheads today. That'll be, that'll be okay. I want to tell you about Martin Luther. He had a great picture of uh, a lightning storm. My slides here that uh, just showed Martin Luther crumpled up, and, I, and I'll get to that. But when Martin Luther was a child, he had an aptitude for learning. And uh, when he was 13 years old, his father sent him off to Erfurt to study at the University of Erfurt. And the idea was is that he was going to uh, do his preliminary studies, his general education, and then pursue uh, a degree in law, which is a- exactly what he did. And um, he continued on, got his bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Erfurt, and soon after that was on the faculty teaching law there at, at the university. And, and his father, Hans, was especially pleased with this because he was a peasant and I think he said he was a son of a peasant who was a son of a peasant who was a son of a peasant. So a long line of, of not great wealth in the, the Luther family. And I uh, just knew that if Martin Luther was a, a lawyer, it's going to help provide for him. It's going to help provide for his family. And Hans was especially excited about that, being worldly-minded in that sense. But in the summer of 1505, Luther was 21 years old, done with, with his college studies and um, teaching. He went home one summer during the summer break to his hometown of Eiselaben to speak with his parents. And from what we know, he went to have a discussion with them about, about his future, about whether he should continue in a course of law or like he really had a heart to do is pursue the ministry. It's something his father was, was strongly against, especially in light of being able to support his family. Well, as God's sovereignty would have it, on his way back from Erfurt, July 2nd, 1505, we have the date on this, he was caught in a severe thunderstorm. And unlike us who drive our cars, and the safest place to, drive, to be in a thunderstorm is where? It's in your car. But unlike them, they were walking or on horseback, and uh, he was fearful. The storm was out there. At one point, a lightning bolt struck very close to him, threw him to the ground, knocked him over, and in desperation of fear for his own safety, he shouted out to the heavens, to the patroness of minors, just for safety, he said, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Well, that was it. He, he lived, just in case you, you didn't know. He didn't die in that thunderstorm. And uh, true to his word, later that month, Martin Luther, in July of 1505, became a monk. And in the monastery, of course, the, the first year is a, is a testing period to see whether or not it really is a good fit for you to become a monk. The brothers, fellow monks, can look at you to see whether you can even examine your heart to see whether this is, is really for you. I mean, think about uh, Maria von Tropp in that famous movie, Sound of Music, right? She enters the, the, the convent and just has a time of probation, whether she really wants to, to do that or not. And it's a time in which the, the, just a schedule of life, just uh, rising early, taking your mass daily, praying seven times publicly with the brethren and spending hours alone in fasting and prayer, singing with the brothers and searching your heart to see if you're fit for the monastic life. Well, Martin Luther and those around him found him fit. And Luther then pledged to give his life as a monk. And to do so, he gave away all his possessions. He gave away his musical instruments. He loved music. He gave away his books, which were many being a student and a professor. He gave away his clothing and he entered a life of poverty in the, the monastery. His, his father wasn't so happy about that, but 
Martin Luther was, and he, he engaged full, full-fledged, fasted and prayed, often went without sleep. He, he endured bone-chilling cold on the cement floor so as to buffet his body without a blanket. He whipped himself to try to beat his body into submission. And of his days as a monk later, he testified this. He says, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I'd kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils and prayers, reading and other work. I mean, he was going at it hard. And yet there was something about his life that was was very empty. He was trying to be right with God, but he felt that God was was angry with him. And he, he didn't feel like he, he measured up. And so he tried as doing as much righteous activity as, as, as the saints had done for years, as the others had been, come before him and fasting and praying. But something was missing. But he, but he still pressed on, figuring that this was the church, this was the way to God. As Luther was a, a man of gifts, he was selected to be trained as a priest. Not all the monks were capable of this, but Luther was identified as being capable of being a priest. And so he was, was trained in that way. And after a couple years, was, was able to celebrate, to officiate at his first Mass. Now, the Mass is a high point in Roman Catholic worship. Uh, maybe some of you who are Roman Catholic or maybe you're former Roman Catholics, I, I don't know. It, it, is a, it is a special day when a priest gets to celebrate his first Mass. And uh, a little bit like a baptism or a first communion or something, you know, you just kind of bring people along and uh, relatives would come and celebrate with a new with a new priest. And things are no different for Martin Luther. Um, In fact, the day scheduled for him to to celebrate the first mass, uh, his father couldn't be there. So they delayed it a month so his father could be there. And his father, this is the first time he, he talked to him since he decided to be a monk. This was several years later actually tried to come in support. So he came in style, 20 horsemen. So imagine a, a retinue of 20 cars, your family, coming to see your son and your, your son's friend, relatives, whatever, friends and relatives celebrate the first Mass. And furthermore, he made a significant contribution to the monastery, which was a generous act indeed for a peasant to make. And then, during the Mass, Martin Luther experienced another lightning bolt. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't a... A physical lightning bolt to his body, but it was an emotional lightning bolt to his soul. It was, it was the reality of what was going on in the Mass. And he was shaken to his bones when he thought about what was actually taking place. Now see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that in the Mass, when the bread and the wine are presented to God, they actually become the body and blood of Jesus. They take Jesus at his word when he says, this is my body given, in, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Roman Catholics take that literally. And whenever the priest lifts up, the host is what it's called, where Jesus will be hosted, it becomes the real body and blood of Christ, doctrine called transubstantiation. The substance is actually transformed during the Mass. If you go to a Catholic Mass today, you can witness it. There's a high point in the service. The priest holds up the wafer and says, Blessed are you, Lord God of creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, 
of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. And those of you who, who know have been there, what, what happens next? The bells ring. Three times. Ching, ching, ching. Denoting the very moment that they believe that that wafer has become the body and blood of Christ. And from then on, that wafer is treated as if it is the body and blood of Christ. It is placed on the altar. The priest kneels, bows in reverence to it. If any of it doesn't get eaten during the Lord's Supper service or then the communion service, it's placed back here. I forget what the name of that. The box is it's placed in there. A red light is turned on. And people come in. They see that light and they say, Jesus is here. Because his body is, is right, right there in that, in that box. Oh, good. Here we go. Here's a second storm. I didn't even realize that. There's a second storm. We got that. Now, we at Rockefeller Bible Course don't believe that. We believe there are symbols when you're saying, this is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant. Because the whole Seder meal, Lord's Supper, was all symbolic about the exodus from, from Israel. But anyway, Luther believed it. And, and, and as he lifted that bread in the air, he crumbled to his knees. At the moment he said, and the liturgy was a little bit different then, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God, believing that this is God in his hands. R.C. Sproul writes, he froze at the altar. He seemed transfixed. His eyes were glassy and beads of perspiration formed on his forehead. A nervous hush filled the congregation as they silently urged the priest on. His father was growing uncomfortable, feeling a wave of parental embarrassment sweep over him. His son's lower lip began to quiver. He was trying to speak the words of the Mass, but, but no words came forth from his mouth. He went limp and returned to the table where his father and family guests were seated. He'd failed. He'd ruined the Mass, disgraced himself and his father. Luther later wrote about this. He says, at these words... I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? And who am I that I should lift mine eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him, and at his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this and I ask for that? For I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. See, Martin Luther understood his place before God as a pygmy, as he said, a miserable sinner in light of a majestic and holy God. And, and as he was performing this rite, he thought, who am I to invoke God to do what I say and to transform this wafer into the body and blood of Jesus? And he saw his sin. And that led him into the confessional to confess his sins. I mean, he was earnest about, about Roman Catholic theology. He was earnest about these things. And he longed to see his sins forgiven. And, and he would confess his sins to another priest frequently, often, and for as long as six hours even on a single occasion. Because he understood his sin. And, and he believed right, that every sin must be confessed in order to be forgiven in order to be absolved. And so he's trying to wipe his slate totally clean. So he, he's there talking with the priest about all of his sins. 
And, and, and then as he's there a while, he, he thinks about sins he just thought about even while he was there in the confessional. And on and on and on he droned. And, and people have said that, well, Luther was insane. I, I, maybe I would contend that Luther was the sane one. And we are insane by being able to suppress our sin. But see, he saw really what it was. And he knew the, the deceitfulness of his own mind. And he, he tried to plumb the depth and tried to find every sin to ever confess that he might be forgiven. And he drove his confessors weary with the repeated confessions, as you certainly know. And so he had to listen to all of these sins that he's, he's mentioning. And uh, this next guy, Johann Staupitz, who is his, um, his mentor in the monastery, he said this, Look here, Martin Luther. If you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parricide, blasphemy, adultery, instead of these peccadilloes. In other words, he's saying, if you want to give me some big sins, don't worry about just the little sins. But Martin Luther knew that any little sin against an infinitely holy God is of infinite proportion. And he knew that he still would stand guilty. And for Luther, it was never enough. It was never enough. He never felt secure in the love of Christ. He never felt forgiven. He never felt like he'd done enough. And I'll just say this. This is very true of any legalist. You show me someone who's got this list of rules that they need to keep. They think they've got Christianity figured out because it's all a bunch of rules. You just follow these rules or do these things or walk these steps. And I will show you someone who you can say, are you sure that's enough? Are you sure that's enough? What about this? And they'll go, oh, I'm not doing that. And then they'll add this other thing. And they'll be like that, that guy trying to spin all these plates in the circus on the, on the poles and trying to keep them all up and trying to do the Bible memorization here and the, the Bible reading here and the, the, the praying here and then the, the church attendance here and the study here and the book here and then this and then the good works and then going out and sharing the gospel. And, and you've got all these things trying to get there. And then you always say, well, are you sure that's enough? And you'll always reach a point with somebody because we, we, we are only finite. But Martin Luther, all his experiences, committed life as a monk, committed to duties as a priest. The, the idea of confession, it drove Luther to think that there was something more. God is so big and we are so small and all our religion will never satisfy and all of our religion will, will never really help our condition before God as helpless sinners. We need something far bigger than ourselves. We need something far bigger than the church, which is a human institution. We need something far bigger than the sacraments, which would, would help to bring us to God. But as Luther went through these sacraments of confession and the holy orders and, and, and praying... Well, it wasn't enough. And Luther and the Reformers found what was far bigger. They found Jesus. They found Christ and Christ alone. My message this morning is entitled Solus Christus. So we can go to the next slide. There we are. The solas we're looking at. The next slide lists all five of them. We've seen Sola Scriptura. It's a scripture alone that it has the authority to guide our lives. It's not church councils it's not church tradition it's what god has said through his word we looked two weeks ago at sola fide that we are justified before god by faith alone last week we looked at sola gracia our salvation is entirely a gift of god's grace alone not one iota of our salvation can we take any credit for at all and this morning solus christus our salvation comes through Christ alone, not 
through the church or through the sacraments. And next Sunday, we'll look at Soli Deo Gloria. So we can go to the next slide, which just kind of holds us right there at, at Solus Christus. And see, this is the very point with Martin Luther, that he, he sought his salvation through the church and through sacraments and through religious activities when what he needed was to go to Jesus. Not the holy orders or the confession of the mass. That was never enough. It was never enough to satisfy until he saw the sufficiency of Christ. And in Jesus, he was satisfied. And this is what all the reformers found, or more properly, they rediscovered. The reformers found and embraced the idea of it's only through Christ alone that we are saved. And my idea of this sermon series, this five weeks that we've been doing before we get into 1 John... um, We're looking at these solas to bring us back to our spiritual heritage because we stand at Rock Valley Bible Church right in line with all the reformers. And I want you to see that and I want you to embrace that. And I have an evangelist friend who often quotes when he's evangelizing, he says says this, that we are saved by grace alone. We got a slide up there, right? The next one. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus Say it together, plus nothing. Plus nothing. And, and he adds that little phrase, maybe this is the, the sixth sola, just to, to put that on the end, just to say, this is defining what we mean by sola. We mean only Christ. We mean only faith. We mean only grace, only the scriptures, only for the glory of God. See, because what the reformers revolted against was, was not that the Catholic Church denied Jesus. You go to any Catholic church, you'll see Jesus on a cross. It's not that any Catholic church denied faith. Oh, of course you need faith. Or, or they denying grace. Of course you need grace. In fact, the Mass is the very means by which we get grace, according to their theology. But you put that word alone on there, and they will balk. Um, there have been some attempts in recent days to put Catholics and Protestants together to form kind of a, um, uh, a doctrinal statement where they can work together. And you can form that because you can just talk about grace. You can talk about faith. You can talk about Jesus. But you can't begin to define these things. You talk about faith alone, Catholics can't sign that, can't go along with that. Grace alone can't sign that, go along with that. But that's where we stand. And, and I, my, my heart for this series is that you would say this phrase that my evangelist friend says, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Because everyone's tendency is going to be to add something They're going to bring something to the table. But it's not. It's all God. And I want all of us to stand, all of us to know that, yes, I hear what the Reformers taught. And, yes, I stand with them because that's what the Bible teaches. Well, as we look at Solus Christus, my my plan in all my messages, I, I tell you a little bit about Martin Luther. It's kind of who I focused on for the sermon series. And then we get into the Bible. And I just want to say, this is what Solus Christus is all about. It's, it's, it's Christ, not the sacraments, not the church, not your works. It's only through Christ to where you should go. And in terms of going to the scriptures, we've got a problem because there's so many to go to. Right? Last week I had a problem too. So many to go to, I just chose Ephesians 2. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the whole Bible talks about this. As Luther once said, Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. So he he covers not only the middle, not only the bullseye, but everything around it is all about Christ. The Old Testament anticipates him. The New Testament explains him. The cross is in the center of everything. 
It's all talking about Jesus. And it's the whole message of the Bible is to draw us to Christ. See, the scriptures don't point us to go to the priests or to go to sacraments or to go to ritual. They instruct us to come to Jesus. And so what, what I'd like to do here is spend the first part of our time in the Gospel of John and just show you how often Jesus relentlessly says, Come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. He could have said, well, go to the temple. He could have said, well, <clears throat> read the scriptures and believe them. But if you believe them, what does he say? They speak of me. Or he could have said, well, we'll give more or, or do this ritual. He didn't. He said, come to me, come to me, come to me. It was his constant message. So let's open the Gospel of John. We're going to start in John chapter 4, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. We're talking page 85 in the second half of the Bible. The Gospel of John. And this is perhaps the most fundamental passage we're talking about when Jesus shows how clearly he is the way of salvation. Jesus says it clearly. John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse has two halves. First describes how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The second part defines and clarifies the first part. I've heard liberals, particularly at funerals, love to read the first half of the sermon. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But they don't read the second part. I've heard, I've heard this first stop several times. But Jesus explicitly says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He says, there's only one way. Jesus isn't a way to God. Jesus is the only way. It's not through priests or rituals or sacrifices. It's through Christ. It's not through psychology or opening the mind or yoga. It's through Christ. It's not through Abraham, as great as he was, or King David, as great as he was, or Muhammad, or the Apostle Paul. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the way to God. He's the only way to God. And often in the Gospel of John, we, we see Jesus pointing people to himself not the religious duties not sabbath observances not washing your hands the right way he's trying to get away from that but come to me and the pharisees by the way hated it but he often invited people to come to me so turn back to chapter five let's just look at one instance here in which the the pharisees were challenged with jesus about the scriptures and they were biblicists they memorized their bible they knew their bibles but they thought that their life was in their Bibles. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And we can fall into that trap as well. Rock Valley Bible Church, we think that life is in the Scriptures. It, it's not. Life is in that to which the Scriptures point. He says, verse 39, let me finish the verse. He says, it is they... That bear witness about me. The scriptures, yes, they're wonderful. Why? Because they point to Jesus, and in Jesus we have life. Come to me, he says. Verse 40 You are unwilling to come to me so that you may not have life. They didn't come to Jesus to have life, but they had the scriptures. And how many people there are that have the scriptures but don't have life in Jesus? Liberal theologians at seminaries abound across our land who have that. Um, 
religious departments, secular campuses, they love ancient languages. And so they're into ancient languages, but they're not, they're not, to wit, they're not believing and trusting the one to whom that points. But think about that. You can have eternal life is in Jesus. Come to me so that you may have life. There's a, there's a need to come. And when you come to Christ, you can have it. Okay? And this is the pattern we're going to see over and over again. You're going to, I'm going to sound like a, like a mantra drum. Just come to Jesus is what he's saying. Come to Jesus. Look over in chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus called himself the bread of life. Of course, he's, again, here's a picture. He's talking metaphor. He's talking about, about bread sustains you. you. You come to me, eat of me, and I will sustain you. In fact, look at the second half of that. He who believes in me will never thirst. Believing is... Another way of talking about coming to me. It's talking about coming to Christ, coming to Jesus and believing him. If you do, you'll never hunger. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean to come in front of the church. Oftentimes evangelists are like, right, come to Jesus, come to the front. Right? And people think that they're com- that is coming. That's not. Coming is believing. That's what these two phrases of this stand, they, they taught her. Hey, coming to Jesus doesn't mean you, you take a pilgrimage anyplace. Coming means that you, you come and hear the words of Jesus and you believe them and you trust them. And those to whom Jesus was speaking just didn't believe. Look at verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen and yet you do not believe. They saw, they didn't believe, they didn't come to Christ. And then Jesus, and we're going to spill back into sola gratia here because these statements about about coming and the whole invitation to come, he so wraps them up in sola gratia that they are one and the same. He's showing how, how it's, it's all filled with grace. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. See, it's the Father who gives Jesus his followers. As the Father gives Jesus his followers, they will come. Notice it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So if the Father gives someone to Jesus, they will come to Jesus. But think about this. Not all come to Jesus, right? I mean, we dealt with lots of people this week, lots of parents. They're not coming to Jesus. They don't have any interest in Jesus. But they want their kids to be trained and, and they, they want... Their kids to show some fruit of that. That's, that's good. That's helpful. But, but they don't come. And it could just be that God hasn't given them to Jesus because everyone that God gives to Jesus will come. Here's evangelism and sovereignty mixed right at, right at the same time. But why is it that, that God gives? It's because it's all of grace. See, it's the Father who initiates salvation. It's He who completes salvation. And even look look what it says, right? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is security because if God gives, he keeps. And one of the great implications of Solus Christus is that there is this security in Christ. Martin Luther, right, was always striving, always working, always yearning, always trying to do more, always trying to come closer. And he never quite got there because you can't get there in your own works. But... If it all depends on the Father, 
all depends on God who gives. There's a great assurance and comfort in these words. In fact, um, that comes in verse 44, chapter 6, verse 44, right? <laughs> they grumbled. Jesus says, don't grumble. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, you cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws you. You cannot come to Christ unless God acts upon you first to bring you and to draw you in. It's grace. We talked about that last week. And I know that there are those who don't like this doctrine. I'm not sure about you all today. Um, There's some visitors here today. I don't know where you stand with these things. But it's a hard saying of Jesus to say they don't come because God hasn't given them. They don't come because God is not drawing But yet Jesus is offering. He said, hey, come to me. And they're not. And so he explains, well, the reason why you haven't come is because God hasn't given you to me. And it's even right here how difficult it is. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying or this is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? They were saying it doesn't make sense in our human reasoning that the choice isn't up to us. Don't we choose to follow Jesus? Of course we choose to follow Christ. But we only choose because God has worked in us first. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what the Pharisees are hating against. They're saying, oh, this is a hard saying. And Jesus explains. It couldn't be clearer. Verse 61. They were grumbling. He knew, he knew that his disciples were grumbling about this. He said, do you take offense at this? He says, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who didn't believe and who it was that would betray him. And as it says in verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted from the Father. He's making grace the very issue. And so... If you struggle with these things, you're in good company. And Jesus is trying to explain it to you and trying to say, this is why you don't come because the Father hasn't given you to me. And he's repeating it. He's just saying, no one can come to me unless it's been granted from the Father. You come because Jesus has been granted God as Father. And that's, I mentioned last week how people don't like this because there's something in us that wants to take some credit for our salvation minuscule as it is, we want to take some credit. And, and Jesus is taking it all away, saying it's all up to God. God is the one with the grace. We want to hold on to our own sovereignty in some measure. We want to hang on to our own free will. Listen, you don't have free will. You have volitional will. That is, everything you do, you do voluntarily and willingly. But there's, you're bound in sin. That's what Luther wrote last week, right? The bondage of the will. We're bound in our sin. But, but God oversees all of that, and he can take you out of the bondage of sin through Christ. And, and verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I just encourage you, don't walk away from Jesus because of these words. A, a disciple there is, a, is one who is following Jesus around, and when he spoke things that were too hard, they said, nope, don't want that. And then they just went their way. And how many there are that do that? They like a lot of things in the Bible, but when there are things in the Bible that, that kind of rub hard, like the fact that gay marriage is, is not even a biblical concept. 
The fact that homosexuality is a sin. People hear that. Oh, they don't want that. They want a different Jesus. They've just walked away. They are, verse 66. But we need to be Bible people. Believe the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you're going to pick and choose, I've heard one preacher say, you might as well take some scissors and start cutting it out of your Bible. We can't just pick and choose. And there'll be a time where it may cost us. As you all know what happened this week. Don't walk away from Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus simply because you can't understand what he's saying. Do you think Jesus' mind is greater than your mind? Do you think God's mind is greater than your mind? Do you think God has a way of orchestrating life that maybe you don't understand? I think so. So just trust what Jesus says. The invitation is there to come. To come. Even if it's all of grace and dependent upon God. Well, we we find the same thing here. The Feast of Booths, chapter 7. Look at verse 2. The feast of booths was, was at hand. And so Jesus went to the booth, to the, to the feast. And he says in verse 37, at the, the festival, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's the offer. Says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink from me. And then again, we see this believing metaphor. So the coming means believing. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow the rivers of living waters. Almost parallel what he's saying about the bread of life. Bread is the substance that gives life. Water is the substance that sustains life. And you come to Jesus and you will have an abundance of of life, refreshing water for your soul and nourishment, just believing and trusting in Christ. And and again, let's understand the, the... the verbal picture that he's given here, it's coming to Jesus for life. He didn't say, come and do this ritual. He didn't say, well, come and know this special knowledge or, or come and do these duties or, or come into vocational ministry if you're going to make it. We'll talk about that next week. Soli Deo Gloria, living all ministries to the glory of God. This, let's break down this sacred, sacred secular divide. He didn't say, hey, hey, come to church. He didn't say, hey, come gather. He didn't say, hey, do X, Y, Z. What did he say? He simply, come to Jesus. Come to me. It's easy to understand. So is Christus. It's easy to understand. A child can understand come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Now we see a slight change of metaphor in chapter 10, but it's still really the same thing. He says in the chapter that he is the, the good shepherd. So he says that in verse 14. He pictures himself, the shepherd of the sheep, takes a common biblical metaphor, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and, and then he picks it up in verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. This is Hanukkah. This is when they celebrated Jewish Maccabeus' revolt and the miracle that happened there. And the Jews still celebrate today around Christmas time. That's why it was winter, as verse 23 says. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> and Jesus said, I told you and you don't believe. <laughs> but they didn't believe because their ears were hardened and their eyes were stopped. But, but the, the sound waves were coming into their ears and, and they were seeing the miracles. And they even, right here's John chapter 10, John chapter 9 that a miracle has taken place, we can't deny. There is something that took place. This blind man was... But we need to like, go against him. And so they saw this miracle. They, they saw it with their eyes, but they didn't believe. Jesus told them, but they didn't believe. I told you plainly. You did not believe. Verse 25. 
the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. John chapter 9, the blind man. But we could go back and see other miracles. Feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Walking on water, chapter 6. The, the man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. Chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son. The turning of the water into wine, chapter 2. All these, these are works that give testify to him. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, here again, just, just look at the metaphor of Jesus. He's saying, come to me and have eternal life. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Not the, not the church, not the religious duties there. And again, it is, it is so interesting here in the Gospel of John that with the, the wide open invitation to come, when they don't come, Jesus says, well, it's because you're not my sheep. Now, notice the logic here of Jesus. We might think easily, right, that those who believe are God's sheep, right? right? You believe in Jesus and you become God's sheep. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you don't believe me, and so you're not my sheep. He says, you're not my sheep, therefore you don't believe. Isn't that, look at verse 26. Again, isn't that exactly what he says? He says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Or you're not of my sheep. And, and most people just don't, don't see the logic here. What, what he's saying is, ontologically there are people who are god's sheep and not and as jesus voice goes out his sheep hear his voice i've been told that in a shepherd in a in a pasture of sheep that's mixed they know who their shepherd is and you can have a a mixed fold there and have one one man call out whatever hey sheepy 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 come here i don't know what they say come here and and it's the sheep that, that's my shepherd. And they'll just gradually drift and they'll come their way. And the others won't because they've got another shepherd. And their shepherd is not this shepherd that's calling. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's a, there's a mixed multitude out here. And as my voice goes out, my sheep are the ones who hear. And then they turn and then they follow me. That's what Jesus says. There is grace. And here's a different metaphor. Rather than coming to Jesus, following Jesus. Same thing. But following Jesus is the the same thing as believing. And again, in verse 28, there's a security aspect of it. No one will snatch them out of my hand because they are my sheep. So why do we do a vacation Bible school? Because there there are God's sheep out there among the kids and among the adults. And we don't know who they are. But we extend the invitation and we call to them and we preach the gospel to them. We urge them to believe. And those who are God's sheep, God will work in them and will stir their hearts. And then they'll come to Christ. And that's, then that's all of God's grace that he stirred in their heart. It's none of them. It, it's, it's none of us. It's not our trickery or our winsomeness. And we'll, we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 1 a little bit. It's not, not because of our wisdom that, that gets there. But his sheep will follow him. You don't become a sheep by following. It's that following is a manifestation of who you are. Got that? This is the difference. You don't, you don't follow Jesus to become a sheep. You follow Jesus because you are a sheep. And it's right here that you can see the difference 
in Roman Catholic Church and Protestant Church. See, in Rome, as well as the Jews of Jesus' day, the church or the synagogue or the temple was totally necessary. You've got to come through us. You need to be baptized into our church. You need to confess your sins to our priests. You need to be confirmed and go through confirmation to receive our Mass. Which, in this Mass, this imparts saving grace to you. That's why it's so important to come to church because you need grace. Because I got this grace. I can turn this, turn this wafer into the body of Christ that then you can have and you can eat it and then you can have grace of God. You need to come to me though because it's only the priest. No, no king, no ruler, no, nobody can change this thing into, a, into the body and blood of Christ. Except, except me. You got to come to me. You got to come to the church. And when you come to die, you've got to have the last rites given to you. So you enter your way into heaven. I've been to several Catholic funerals. And, you know, it's, it's the last rites are performed, the incense over the coffin. And, and it's going back to so-and-so was baptized into the Catholic church on this day. And when they're baptized, that means they're born again. Because Jesus said you need to be born of water. And that's how you're born of water is to baptize them. And it's a whole system. That's Rome. And in that way, the church becomes indispensable to your eternal life because the church has the keys to the kingdom and you must go through her. Protestant understanding of church is totally different. It's totally different. The church is a gathering of his sheep. The church is a gathering of those who love Jesus. The church is those who, who desire to be in fellowship with one another. On the one hand, you know what? We don't really need the church because it's Jesus alone. However, the Bible talks a lot about the church. And we need the church because the church is joy. The church is our source of strength. It's where God's people love to gather. It's where we encourage one another towards the end. It's where, where God's sheep are, are kept in the fold and are, are, are nourished and helped along that way. But it's not that the church is indispensable. It's not like Rock Valley Bible Church is indispensable to your life. But it is that Rock Valley Bible Church is indispensable to your life. Not because you have to come to me. Not because you have to come to others, but because this is where you're going to hear the gospel again. This is where you're going to be supported. This is where you're going to be encouraged, where you have a chance to serve. You're going to be empowered and enabled to spread the gospel. The church, really, in this way, becomes an expression of heaven on earth. That's why it's important. Now, see, it's not important at all for you coming to God, but it is important for you to understand what it means to come to God. It is important for you to, to be encouraged and be directed. You remember Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, do not neglect the assembling together, so the habit of some, but encourage one another day after day as long as still called today so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So don't, don't be hardened by sin, but gather together because that's where you're encouraged to, to keep pressing on. But it's not because we've got these magical keys to give you grace. It's because you see there's no place I'd rather be than right here on Sunday morning and in that Bible study in someone's home and, and, and reaching out with some neighbors and enjoying a, a trip together. We exist to point you to Christ. So we seek to do every Sunday at Rock Valley Bible Church is to point you to Jesus and not to ourselves. Because as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. See, be- between us and God, there's one mediator. As 1 John 2, 1 says, he calls him as ad- our advocate. He stands between us and God, and it's Jesus. 
It's not, there's one mediator. It's the, the priest and confessional in the church. No, it's Jesus. It's so simple. And our role as a church isn't to point you to the church as necessary. We'll point to the church as helpful, yes. But our role as a church is to point you to Jesus through whom you can come to God. Pointing you to Christ. I've heard some say that the whole system of the Catholic Church is all about power. See, the more you make yourself indispensable, it's all about power. But the more you dispense yourself and you're not as important, there's less power there. That could be. But it's a whole system. See, the, the Jews, weren't, weren't the Jews of Jesus' day worried about um, if they believe in Jesus, then they'll go away from us. Right? All the world is going after them. Um, and they were, they were worried about that. Well, how, how, how are they going to do that? They're all worried about power. All worried about who's going who's gonna to come and stay with us and who's going to go and they're going to follow Jesus. We're going to lose power. We're going to lose numbers. It was all about that. And I fear that's much what the Catholic Church is about, was about. The Reformers saw right through that. That's what Solus Christus is all about. It's about our eternal salvation. It's wrapped up in a person, not in a doctrine or not in a, an idea. In fact, go to the end of John. Look, look, at, look at what this says. The end of John, the purpose of John, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is the whole purpose of why John wrote his gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. See, it's all about a person. It's all about believing in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, he's the one that dispenses eternal life to you. So it's all about pointing people to Jesus. The Gospel of John is about pointing people to Christ, not the church or the priest or confessional, all these things you're doing. Not your service here or there. It's all about Christ because life comes through Christ. So come to him, follow him, believe in him. So, okay, I don't have a point, but that's my first point, coming to Jesus. So here's my second point is about, okay, so what does that mean for us at church? What does it mean? Well, it means that we need to relentlessly point people to Christ. 1 Corinthians, turn over there. 1 Corinthians um, we can spend a lot of time here in this passage. First Corinthians chapter 1, there's divisions in this church. Some are following Apollos, some Cephas, some Paul, some Christ. And, and, and Paul, Paul says, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom. Here it is. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's what solus Christus means that we as a church need to believe and trust in solus Christus and point people to Christ relentlessly over and over again all the time. And if we don't, well then, what verse 17 says is that cross of Christ is emptied of its power. Now, I just say this. There, there are lots of churches today that their modus operandi is numbers. And, and so as to get numbers, they, how do you say this? They don't preach the gospel. They, they preach helpful messages. Ten steps to a better marriage. Or five steps for this. Or get your life in balance. Or this. And 
And that's okay. You draw a big crowd and maybe you're pointing. But what are you doing when you, when you don't preach the gospel? You're nullifying the power of the church, right? Not with words. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but I came, verse 17, to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be empty of his power. If you, if you wax eloquent, and if you give great wisdom to people, apart from the cross, about how to make your life better, you've just nullified the power of the cross. And you may get a lot of numbers, but you've taken the power of the church away. True church growth will happen when the gospel is preached and when things are focused upon Christ. That's what Paul says, verse 18. The word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. (laughs) There are lots of perishing people filling churches who are never hearing the word of the cross. My my brother-in-law, I remember before he was saved, he went to a big mega church that preached, and, and it was years before he ever realized that he was perishing. Years. By God's grace, he did. I went to a church that would preach in the gospel. It, see, because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And there's the power. You, you preach the gospel, you preach the cross, and there's power there. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will, def- I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Case in point, our country. They think things are so wise with the SCOTUS decision that came down this past week. Oh, we're so wise. We're so including. And this is the wise way. And the only unpardonable sin today is if you speak against that movement. You're forced to apologize. Or you, you lose your business or you lose your job or you lose your standing. That's the wisdom of the world. But, where was I? Verse 21. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek for wisdom. But we don't give signs. We don't give wisdom. What do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. This is exactly what Phil read in Acts chapter 4. There's salvation in no other name under heaven has been given among men by which it must be saved except that of Christ. And they're preaching Christ in the Sanhedrin, right? Wanting signs from Jesus. Jesus gave them signs. They didn't believe him anyway, but they, they went down on it. And they're just preaching. The, the Greeks sought for wisdom. You can read about that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. They always wanted to hear something new. But Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I had one agenda on mind. And my agenda was to preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. They stumbled over that stone, but that is the chief cornerstone. And so he said, when I came into Corinth to plant the church, I was single-mindedly focused upon Jesus. I wanted to bring Jesus to you. And he says, even in chapter 2, verse 2, right? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I imagine there was some pressure for him to speak on other things. He said, no, 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 i got to get back to solus Christus. i got to get back to only Christ, only the message of the cross, that he died on the cross for our sins to make us right before God. And when he came, he said, verse 3 of chapter 2, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but it was in the demonstration of spirit and power. 
And this is key. It's not me that you're following, but I came weekly so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's where when you preach this foolish gospel and people believe it is a genuine belief and people embrace that. So it's interesting here when Paul, we skipped over 26 through 31, but it's all about election and sovereignty and who God chooses. He chooses the the base things that we choose, the foolish things of the world. He chooses those who aren't. So he might shame those who are wise. He doesn't choose the great people. He chooses the lowly, humble people. And that's the church of Corinth, how the church of Corinth was, was made up. And that's what happens with the gospel. Those who are desperate, those who are humble, come to God. As verse 30 says, because of him, or the NES says, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. See, God saves us in such a way that there's no way for us to boast because it's his doing that we're in Christ Jesus. Yes, the gospel goes out, but God is the one who works in our hearts to be there. And we as a church, we just need to trust that. We just need to trust in God to to give the growth. And and over in chapter 3, even we see this again, that that God is the one who builds. Verse 5, chapter 3, what is Apollos? He was a mighty Bible teacher. What is Paul? Who are these people? These are servants through whom you believe this the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but here was God caused the growth. It's solus Christus, only Christ, only God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God gives the growth. He repeats that again and again. He says God is the one who gives the growth. Okay. First part, John, come to me, believe in me. Jesus is always saying, come, believe in me. Don't, not, it's not the temple, it's not the ritual sacrifices. Okay, what does it mean for us at church? We need to be radically solus Christus in all that we do. And, and then thirdly, here's, what, what about for us? Does Christ just help us coming to Christ? And I say, good news, because, because it gets way better even than just coming. And this is in Second Peter. Turn over to Second Peter. I want to read the first four, three verses of Second Peter. And these are, these are rich indeed. They're helpful to us. Solus Christus. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, <laughs> and uh, their, their soli deo gloria, your faith is just like ours. It's not like there's one above another. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Catch this. Jesus has given to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need. See, there are many who go about their lives yearning for something more going from book to book to book, going from teaching to teaching to teaching, from from teacher to teacher to teacher, from church to church to church, looking just for the right thing that's going to help them in life. Um, Maybe it's that charismatic church that's going to show me the miraculous sign that's going to get me there. Maybe it's the rock band with high energy worship. Yeah, that, that, maybe that's going to get me there. Maybe it's the liturgy. Maybe that's what I need. I just need to do the, the same thing each week and say the doxology every week and the Gloria Patri. Maybe that's it. Or maybe there's a large crowd. Like maybe that's going to help as everyone is there. Maybe it's this, this conference or this, this teacher from England or Australia. Or, or, and, and people just go looking, 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 looking for something. 
And through it all, they're trying to find something out there, and they haven't quite found yet what's going to be the key to their spiritual life. And they've missed it, not realizing it. the power is right under their nose because Christ Jesus, His divine power is granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You know, people sing, more love, more power. Do you know the song? More of you in my life. We don't need more. We've got everything that we need in Christ. His divine power has given all things pertaining to life and, and godliness. We don't need more power. We don't need more. We already have all that we need. We need to apply it and trust it rather than some special experience. Um, our problem is simply we just don't treasure what we have in Christ. Ephesians 3.8 speaks of the unfathomable riches of Christ. As we looked at last week, Paul prayed that you might know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, the power of the saints, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. See, our problem isn't that we don't have enough for our guided life. Our problem is we don't fully grasp the riches that we have. And we live in, in meager poverty. And so I just say this, church family, let's be solus Christus in our, in our evangelism, pointing people to Jesus. Let's be solus Christus in our philosophy as a church as we think about just how we're doing things. We're just focusing on the cross and Him crucified. Let's be solus Christus in our life that we just believe that God through His Word is sufficient for us, that the living, abiding Christ is sufficient for us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, he says that. That, that through Jesus, then we can do all things. And He's given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. So let's, let's live solus Christus. Individuals, we come to Christ church-wide, and uh, individuals, we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would simply apply this word. It's a foolish that I would stand up here and rant for an hour about your word, and yet there's something about that that's life-giving. And we've seen that here at Rock Valley Bible Church. It just stirs love among the brethren. It stirs a unity among us. It stirs a a heart to work and labor as took place this week at Vacation Bible School. And so, Lord, in that we do, we do look and trust and, and believe that you will accomplish your purpose among us, small though we may be. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've asked Ryan to change the order of service a little bit in that I thought it would be great if we respond by singing a couple Christ Alone songs. All I have is Christ. Alleluia. And in Christ alone. So I trust that just with a, a call to worship that was 50 minutes long, you might have hearts that, that want to just worship Christ. So we're going to sing those two songs.